Right. Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's look to the person next to you and say, today's going to be a good one. Can you say that? Yeah. Uh, and then look to someone else and say, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Today, um, I want to let you know about one of my favorite movies. Uh, it came out in 2004. Uh, I'm probably the only person on the planet who considers this to be a good movie as far as in the conversations I've had. But it's a movie called The Village that came out in 2004. Anyone seen The Village? Okay, a couple of us have seen it. Anyone like The Village? Okay, good. Okay, two good people, so I'm, I'm not like completely abnormal. Um, we're in the minority because Rotten Tomatoes really considered it rotten and uh, all the critics gave it really bad reviews. But it came during the, the, the pinnacle of the directing career of a man named M. Night Shyamalan who is, a, a, I think he a, was a directorial genius. I'm not sure about now because some of his later stuff like Last Airbender has been a little bit weird. But uh, when The Village came out, uh, he was the man, right? He had put out these great movies, and kind of his signature was he would do these, like, epic, crazy plot twists at the end where you're like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> and, like, your jaw's on the floor, and you don't want to leave the movie theater. Crazy stuff, like Sixth Sense. You remember Sixth Sense? Like, oh, that, oh, my goodness, he just did that to me. Kind of a feeling. Sixth Sense, Signs, he, he did that one. A uh, movie called Unbreakable uh, with Samuel L. Jackson. So during the, the peak of his directory, uh, directoring prowess, came the movie The Village, and I thought it was fascinating, but other people said I wasn't quite up to par with the other ones. So I'm going to tell you everything about it so that, uh, because I don't think anyone wants to watch it, but the movie was set in 18th century America, and this group of people who lived in a village, okay, a village is about, I don't know how many people, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people, and they were like Amish-looking folks, wore Amish garb, 18th century. Um, they dressed like that, and it was a very moral society, very strict boundaries. People were innocent. They were pure. They were kind. They respected each other. It was that kind of a place. It was kind of an aberration, uh, even in those days in the 18th century. They were all, uh, this like Amish kind of a lifestyle, uh, very simple and very innocent in their, uh, in their ethic and their understanding of morality and of the world. Turns out that the village wasn't really set in the 18th century after all. It was set in modern day times and that's the big twist. You're like, oh my gosh. Like the first time I saw a normal looking person, I was like, holy cow, what in the world just happened? Other people were just like, oh, that's weird. But the village was separated from the rest of the world by this massive forest. Okay? This massive force is kind of like Wakanda without the vibranium. Okay? That's the way it was set up. 21st century, all of life, and then this huge uh, forest, which was actually a wildlife preserve that someone from the village, their ancestor, had bought. The reason the village was created, you find out later, is that the elders of that village had all, like the rest of us, lived in the real world, but they'd experienced a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness. One of the main leaders had a family member murdered. And as he was, uh, a bunch of them were sitting outside of this uh, grief counseling clinic. As they walked out, he approached them and said, we've all experienced tragedy, heartache, pain, unlike anything else in this life. I understand. Do you guys want to start a village together where we who know can be isolated from the brokenness and the pain of this world? And so the village was created. And for many years, the older people in the village had this secret. The younger people in the village, the next generation, had no idea there was an outside world. 
And life was going fine and dandy for them in that isolated, ignorant society until the day came where this man was in love with this girl. But she, instead of loving him back, was in love with another man. And so this guy takes a knife and he stabs the other man. And all of a sudden, the village goes crazy. What has just happened? They put this guy in isolation while they try to figure out what's happened. And they realize this deep theological truth. This is why those who like this movie uh, are really spiritually mature. Because they realize, here's the truth. That the wickedness and the evil and the brokenness isn't out there in the world. Maybe it's a lot closer to home than we think. Maybe what's wrong with the world is really in here. For the next uh, few weeks, I want to ask this question. What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world in which we can routinely go on social media and see the hashtag MeToo? And we understand that this is the byproduct of a world that said, let boys be boys, and when boys are boys, then girls are garbage, as Ann Voskamp said. That's the world in which we live. Something is deeply broken with the world in which we live. When you look at oppression, you look at injustice, when you look at the gatekeepers of morality committing the most indecent acts of immorality, you realize that something is wrong with the world in which we live. The question I want to ask for the next few weeks is, what's wrong with our world And what did God do about it? I want to ask that question by looking at the book of Romans. We spent six weeks talking about this great encourager, Barnabas, and the main recipient, one of the main recipients of his courage-pouring lifestyle was a man named Saul who was transformed by the power of God and became Paul, this great apostle, missionary, theologian, par excellence, who went and started all of these churches. And in his greatest treatise, probably the greatest expression of the gospel that you could ever find, the book of Romans, we find answers to the question of what's wrong and what God did to it. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. In turning to Romans, you're understanding that this book is the cause for the reformation of the world in 1570. It's a book that changed Martin Luther's life. It is where we get the clearest depiction of the good news of Christianity encapsulated in 16 chapters. We're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The writings of a real man, the Apostle Paul, who lived about 2,000 years ago, a little bit less than that, and whose letter to the church in Rome continues to inform us today. Romans 1, verse 18. This is God's word. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, check it, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. This is God's word. There's something desperately wrong with our world when this is the human condition. What's wrong with our world? Paul writes about this. Again, the fullest depiction of the good news that we see in Scripture. But Paul's deal is, in order for you to understand the good news, first got to trudge through the bad news. Because unless you realize the darkness of the bad, you will not see the blinding brilliance of the altogether infinite light that has come into the world. You've got to see the bad news before you understand the good news. And the way Paul does it in Romans chapter uh, 1 through 16 is he goes through this progression, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about these things. Three thoughts here as we look into what is wrong with the world and what did God do about it. And the first thing is this, God has clearly revealed himself to us through creation. God has clearly revealed himself to us through creation. So he takes this four-step journey and he begins with creation and he talks about this simple idea. As he hearkens back to Genesis chapter 1, he talks about creation and how before time ever came into existence, before there was anything, there was God. Infinite, eternal, immortal God was there. He always was. He, there was never a time where he was not. God always was. And in the beginning, he said, let there be light and all that was was spoken, not built, not manufactured, not Lego pieces, but spoken into light. That's the power of God. Spoke, and all that we see was created and came into being. That's creation. From the very outset, we recognize that God is the champion. God is the main character, and everything that was created is just a little supporting actor along the way that points to the greatness of the creator. It's him, it's him, it's him. All of the people that you worship are a sign, imago Dei, made in the image of God, showing the greatness of who God is, and everything that God created was a means of showing that it's all about God. All of creation screams out, there is a God, he's awesome, he's good, worship him, see him, exalt him, surrender to him. All of creation is pointing to that one undeniable reality. And so he says here, 
in chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, he's saying what the psalmist said back in in the Psalms. Creation declares the glory of God. The glory of God in all of the world. Everything that you look at points to the fact that there was an amazing creator who made all of these things and spoke them into being. When I was in, in, in college, I used to love this song uh, by Brian Dirksen. He was uh, a group called Vineyard, a church called Vineyard, and he wrote this song called Creation Calls, right back. I think it might have actually come out during the same time. Now, it wasn't the same time as, uh, as The Village. It was before that. But does anyone know this song, Creation Calls? Right, Creation Calls, okay, a few of them. Um, so this guy wrote this song. This is crazy. There's a place in British Columbia where he was sitting mountains and foliage, rivers, oceans, all of these things, um, beautiful sky, different colors. And, and, and as he was sitting there looking at creation, he wrote this amazing song. It's called Creation Calls. And, it, and the words go something like, um, I have seen, uh, I have seen, uh, I have uh, I felt the wind blow whispering your name. And every time the wind blows, I sense that there's a God and he's whispering that there's a creator. I have felt uh, the, uh, the, the, the tears fall when I watch the rain. Because how could I say there is no God when all around creation calls? A singing bird, a mighty tree, the vast expanse of open sea. How could I see that and say there's no God? Right? Gazing at a bird in flight, right? soaring through the air, lying down beneath the stars, I feel his presence there. I love to stand at ocean shore and feel the, the thundering breaker's roar. To walk through uh, golden fields of grain neath endless blue horizons frame. That everything in all of creation is screaming out that there's a God. How could I say there's no God? When all around there's the fingerprints of God in all of creation. It says, I see that clearly. And that's what Paul says here also. It says, listening to a river run, watering the earth. The fragrance of a rose in bloom, a newborn's cry at birth. How can I say there is no God when all around creation calls? The goodness of creation. You look at the world created good and you realize that you cannot even spell good without God. There is no goodness if there is no God. How can you say there's no God? And this is what he says in verse 20. You see that there's a God. Whether you believe it's a God of the Bible or not, you cannot believe that there's not a God if you look at all of creation. I, I think about the creator God, Francis Chan and Crazy Love talks about some of these things. Do you know that, that a caterpillar, like little caterpillar, in a caterpillar's itty-bitty head, there are 228 muscles in that itty-bitty head of his. 228 heads that God spoke and said, there's going to be 228 muscles in that tiny little slug-like thing. That's the creation of God. Did you know when you go to the store, you can buy two kinds of bananas, organic or not organic, but God created hundreds of different kinds of bananas. Did you know that? That's crazy. And some of us, we go down to the, to the Amazon areas of Ecuador. If you cut out one square mile of the Amazonian rainforest, you will find thousands of different kinds of trees in one square mile 
in the Amazon jungle. That's crazy. A spider, right? You know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her? Did you know that that spider in one hour, okay, from the time we start the message to the time we end service, in one hour you could find a spider, he will create or she will create 60 feet of silk in one hour. That's a lot of silk. But here's the problem with spiders. If he creates that silk, he'll get stuck on it. His feet will get stuck on it. So how does a spider not get stuck on its own silk? At the same time, simultaneous to the creation of 60 feet of silk, he secretes an oil on his feet that keeps him from sticking on his own web or her own web if her name is Charlotte. But whatever you call it, this is, a, this is the creation of God. There are 350 billion galaxies, and that is a conservative estimate. We live in this one beautiful galaxy called the Milky Way. There's a principle in science called the anthropic principle. Anyone know what that is, the anthropic principle? Okay, basically says that everything in our universe is ordered perfectly in order that we might be able to live. That every, someone nicknamed it the Goldilocks principle, that everything in our world is made just right for us to live. Did you know that? Did you know that the earth is the perfect distance from the sun? Okay, if it was any further from the sun, we would, we, would, we would freeze over. If it was any closer, it would be too hot to sustain life. We're the exact perfect distance from the sun. See, here in Florida, we have two seasons, right? It's called summer and more summer, right? But in other places around the world, there are four seasons. That's why there's a hotel called the Four Seasons. We think, oh, that's, why do they call it the Four Seasons? It should be called the Two Seasons Hotel. But in real life, in other places, not outside of this utopia that is Florida, there are four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. There's something in the winter called snow that falls from the air, this white fluffy stuff that you can play with. You can eat it, even unless it's yellow, you don't want to eat it, but you can eat snow. It's crazy. Four seasons. You know why there's four seasons? Because the earth is tilted on its axis at 23 degrees. If it was any more or any less, it would not be able to sustain life. It would be too hot or too cold again. Did you know that if the ocean was at even a, a little bit deeper, it would kill all plant life? And did you know that if the crust of the earth were 10 feet thicker, 10 feet thicker, that's ba basketball hoop, 10 feet thicker, then it would destroy animal and human life. The anthropic principle says everything is created in order for us to live. H2O, the water molecule, is the only molecule in all of creation that is less dense in its solid state than in its liquid state. What that means is when you freeze water and make it ice, it will float on top of your glass of water. It's the only molecule in the world that will do that. If it was like every other molecule, then the ice would sink to the bottom of the ocean, the ocean would freeze from the bottom up, and life would be unsustainable. This is the world in which we live, and people have said, all this came out of a big bang. Out of a bang, all of this came out of nothing. Out of a big bang, something came out of nothing, and the poster child 
of scientific progress, people are beginning to realize, you know what, that theory doesn't hold all that much water after all. How could I say there is no God when all around creation calls? The chances of this kind of a world, according to the anthropic principle, being able to sustain our lives, if it were just a bang, probability-wise would take you to flip a coin and it land on heads every time if you were to flip it every second for 10 billion years. That's the odds of this world coming into being without an intelligent designer. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what all the scripture is saying. Here's what creation is saying. When you look at creation, you cannot say there is no God because the first thing we see is that God has clearly revealed himself in creation. It's the first thing that we see. Second thing that we see, that we, we have rejected God. Saying, that's the world God created in, in all of its beauty. We see glimpses of that beauty whenever we see all of these things that creation speaks about. But this world in which we live is not the beautiful world that screams to the glory of God. Again, we see, we have enough in our world to see that, but something has gone wrong. What is it? Here's what he says. He says in, in verse 20, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. He's saying if you don't believe that there is a God, when you look at our world and you look at creation, he says, I don't know what to say because there is no excuse. The power, the character of God has been clearly revealed through what we see in creation. And here's what he's saying. If you don't see that, okay, if you don't see that, it says in verse 18, the godlessness and wickedness of men comes because they suppress the truth. Why? By their wickedness. Okay. He doesn't say because of their dumbness or their stupidity or because they haven't studied enough. He says, no, 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 no. no. You see this, but you are suppressing it. You're rejecting it. You're ignoring it. You're pretending as if God does not exist. Why? Because of our wickedness. It's not an intellectual issue, in other words. It is a moral issue. The reason why we don't want to as ascribe greatness to God is because if we do, then it mandates that we live in submission to the call of this God in our lives. Because if there really is a God, then I can't be God also. Because if there really is a God, then I can't live the way I want to live. If there really is a God, then there's a moral order and a structure, and I have to follow him. If we don't subscribe to the fact that there is a God based on everything we see in creation, he's saying the reason is not an intellectual one. It's not a content issue. It is a commitment issue. It's a cost issue. It's a comfort issue. It's a convenience issue that's causing you to say, okay, maybe there's a God, but I'm going to pretend he doesn't exist because I want to go on living the way that I want to live. That's what he's saying. It's a heart issue then more than it is a mind issue because we have only one of two options. Our option is we will either worship God or we will not worship God. And in the absence of worshiping God, we will worship something else. This is what he says, verse 25. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. 
Because if you're not going to worship the true and living God in that vacuum within our hearts, you know, this nature abhors a vacuum. You will not have a vacuum in nature. So in that void of a God-sized vacuum, something else is going to try to fill that void. And what the Bible says is instead of worshiping the creator, we worship creation. And the language of scripture, when we worship something other than God, is this is an idol. Because none of us just live, we all live for something. And the something for whom we were created to live is we were meant to live for God. It's like St. Augustine said, oh God, our hearts were made for thee and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Because he was the one for whom we were created. But we've got this God-shaped vacuum and if we ignore God, then we will fill that vacuum with another God. With a little g. See, here's, again, the language of, 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 of idolatry. Verse 24, it says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That's the word for idolatry. The Greek word epithemia is very difficult to translate. But here's what he's saying, literally. He's saying it's a desire that has become a super desire. You have a man, not just a normal man, but he's a superman. He is a man who is just gone out of control. That's Superman. A desire that has gone out of control is an idol. That can be a good thing. A good thing. I want to have a good family. That desire goes out of control. Your family has become your idol. I want to be married. A good thing. But when that desire goes out of control, it's become an idol. Not just a desire, a super desire. I want money. Money's fine. Money's a morally neutral thing. You can use it to do a lot of great things. I want money. I want money. Lots and lots of money. I want lots of money. I love money. When that desire becomes a super desire, money has become an idol in your life. I want to climb the corporate ladder because I can do great things. I want to climb the corporate ladder. You're climbing that ladder, but you want that more than anything else, that you would skip church, you would skip your relationships with people, you would step on other people. That has become a super desire. Work, my friend, is your idol. Most kids have stuffed animals that they love. Uh, my four-year-old Elise has two. One is named Penelope. One is named Kokiri. Right? Kokiri means elephant. So she's got two, Penelope and Kokiri. She calls them Pooh and Ko. Right? So where's Pooh? Where's Ko? I want she wants to do everything with them. Right? Kids do that. Right? Oh, mommy, I want to sleep now. Where's my Pooh? Where's my Ko? And here they are. Give it to him, and she sleeps, and she's fine. I want to take Pooh and Ko to school. No, you cannot take Pooh and Ko to school. A normal child, a normal desire, oh, that's sad. They cry a little bit, but that's okay. But when that desire becomes a super desire, what happens? It's not just, oh, it's going to be a sad day. It's like my life is over. And they flip out. They roll on the ground. I mean, this has never actually happened in our life. Let's just pretend that it might. Uh, Elise doesn't get to take Pooh and Ko to school, and so she rolls on the floor. She's like, oh, my gosh. She's like pulling out her hair, and she's like cutting herself and slashing herself. Oh, I can't do this. This is terrible. My life is over. I'd rather just, just take me now, God. Take me now. That is idolatry. Do you know people who they react to something in ways, dude, sorry. You, know, you, re you respond like that. I can't believe you touched my car like that. I can't, go, go, you, you owe me $50. I got to take, take it to the car wash. You're like, dude, I just touched it. I washed my hands too. I see your fingerprint right there. And they get all upset about it. That car has become an idol for that person. 
that desire becomes a super desire. Oh my gosh, my white shoes, my new white shoes, you scuffed them. I can't believe it. It's just one piece of dirt. No, I can't believe it. Do you know how much these shoes cost? That shoe costs you everything because that shoe is your idol. How do you know that something's become an idol? Here's how. Look at what it says in verse 29. This is what you would do. They are, as a result of idolatry, they're full of envy. What, do you envy people who have the thing that you want, but you don't have that? Oh, my gosh. You know, envy is not jealousy. Jealousy is like, I wish I could have that. Envy is hating the person because they have that thing that you want. It is jealousy gone crazy. It's a super desire for something. You know what? I just want to be, you know what? I want to be a millionaire. No, I want to be a billionaire. I want to hit the Powerball lottery. And that person wins. You're not happy for them. You're not like, oh, you know what? I still got my millions. You want to kill that person. You envy them. I wish that person died. They could never cash in that ticket, so it would come down to me. What do you get envious about? What do you, not only envious, here, murder. I wouldn't actually kill. That dude in the village would kill another man to have that woman. That's an idol. You hear this all the time, crazy like Dateline NBC stories. Crazy woman. She looked like a perfectly beautiful woman. She was a PTA president. Oh, the HOA chair. And she killed some other woman. Oh, crazy. Because that man was an idol in her life. It's not just murder. It's not just murder. Jesus said, you got that anger in your heart. You've already committed murder in your heart. That dude, oh, my gosh, I want to be married so badly. And instead of rejoicing with the one who rejoices as you see pictures, you're like, you know what? Shoot, I'm better looking than them. Dang, that's jacked up. Man, I'm a, I wonder what they did. They must have lied in order to get Then you start talking smack to other people. Gossip. What do you gossip about? What do you gossip about? This is revealing your idolatry, friends. It goes on. I, we could go on for a long Strife. Like this causes strife and division amongst you and your friends. Deceit, oh my gosh. Have you ever lied on your resume to get that job that you wanted? Have you ever lied to a, oh, you know what? Dang, that girl wants to go on a first date and she said she'll only go if it's the opera. I hate the opera, hate the opera, hate the opera with all of my life. But, oh, you want to go to the opera? Oh, yeah, I love the opera. Oh, yeah, I love the opera. You deceive other people because deep down the idol of a relationship has become not just a desire, but a super desire in your life. Guys, if you're not worshiping God with all of your heart, right, the vacuum in your heart doesn't close up and shrink. You will replace that God with something else. Slanderers, you slander people, maybe who've got what you want, or you slander people to get what you want. God-haters, ruthless, all of these things. Because at the very end of the road of idolatry is always immorality. What are the things in your life? It can be a bad desire. It can be a good desire. It can be a neutral desire. But you have made that neutral desire, good desire, bad desire, a super desire in your life. Can I tell you another way, according to Tim Keller, that you know that you've got idols in your life? When you look at that idol in the past, okay, your idol is, man, you know what? Perfect family. Yeah, I, man, I want people to know that I got a perfect family. But then your child goes off the deep end and they start ruining your family's reputation. Okay, here's how you know that 
your family's become an idol. You look back at the past and you are racked with guilt. Not normal guilt, like, oh, I wish I'd done better, but constant debilitating guilt. I should have done this more. I should have done that more. I shouldn't have let them do this. I should have been more like this. I should. And then you don't just feel guilty, but you're like, you know what? I don't, I don't even want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. The guilt consumes you. Guilt mapped into the, idolatry mapped into the past reveals itself in guilt. What about in the future? You want that thing in the future. I, I want it so bad. I want it so bad. The result of idolatry in the future is anxiety. My gosh, if I don't get this, I don't know what's going to happen. And you start, anxiety is when we try to play the role of God. Oh, man, I want that so bad. I want that so bad. I don't know how I'm going to, not just, not just ang- normal anxiousness, worry, but it is a crippling anxiety about the prospect of living without this thing in the future. That, my friend, has become your idol. How about in the present? Idolatry mapped in the present will result in anger and bitterness. Are you getting angry a lot? Getting bitter a lot? Because something that you want right now is being blocked. I want that promotion so bad, but that dude's got it. I hate that guy. I hate that guy. Can't believe, why did, why did the boss pull him into his office? I wonder what he said to him. I wonder, dude, what's it? And then you just begin to get angry and play out these scenarios in your heart. What are the things that are wrestling in your heart with God for supremacy on the throne of your heart? Because you follow the bitterness, the anger, the guilt, the anxiety, the gossip, the slander. And that trail, I guarantee you, will lead you to your God with a big or little G. Actually, it's always going to be a little G if these things are the result. So what's your idol? Is it popularity? Is it success at work? Is it to be loved by the right people? Is it a friendship? Is it a romantic relationship? What's your idol? What wrestles in your heart with God? Because the result of that, okay, the result of that is basically the world we live in. The third thing that we see then is that the result of rejecting God is our world as we know it. Because our world has rejected God, that's why Republicans and Democrats can't get along. Yeah, it used to be, guys, it used to be, hey, if I'm a Democrat and, and Republicans win, or if I'm a Republican and Democrats win, oh, that's, that's really sad. But now people are like, it's the end of my life. I'm going to burn America. I'm going to flee to Canada. Like, it, it's, it's the end of the world for us. Do you see how twisted a desire for Republican ideals, a desire for Democratic ideals, de- desire for whatever ideals. I don't care. You pick your own, your own set of beliefs as it relates to Scripture, as you find your own biblical conviction. Don't follow blindly. And if it's not a political party that's in existence, that's fine. You vote independent or you do whatever you want to do, but you do something based on your conviction and you come to your own set of beliefs, not because everyone tells you you ought to, but because you believe these things to be scripturally based. But... In these days, these desires have gone haywire that our idol has become liberalism or conservatism or whatever it is. And because of that, here's our world. The result of rejecting God, both, and there are people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Christian, I'm a Republican. But both of them, if these are the result, both of them have rejected God. 
And the world as we know it is a result of our rejection of God. What did God do about it? Why didn't he do anything about it? Three times, verse 24, verse 26, 28, he says, God gave them over. Three times, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. Because of our abject and utter rebellion and rejection of God, in his brokenness and in his pain, it says he gave them over. Over. It's like in Luke chapter 15, a son who wants to go away and, and, and it, he goes up to his dad and he says, Dad, you know what? I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Give me the inheritance that I'm only supposed to get when you die. And dad in a broken heart liquidates his stuff, gives him his money in the hope that in chasing after his idols that he would come home realizing that the idols do not satisfy his heart. The father gives him over. Again, a, a, a crude example. A beautiful woman married to her husband. The loveliest, fairest of maidens when she was married continues to remain in just absolute beauty. And one day, out of nowhere, her husband says, I don't love you anymore. In fact, for as long as we've been married, I've been cheating on you, going down to the shady parts of town, and paying women a dollar a night to spend time with them. I know this may be rated PG-13, and we have young people here, but I, I, I want you to see how dark it is, a situation when we reject God and what it looks like. And she pleads with him, please, I'll do whatever, whatever it is that you want. How can I show you that I'm worthy? How can I show you that I love you? How can I show you that, that, that I'm everything that you need? And finally, against hope, she says, I'll let you go. In the hope that in tasting the poison and toxin of that forbidden fruit, that he would come back to realize that what he had in her was everything that he was looking for. In love, God gave them over. And the result is the world as we know it. What does this world look like? It gets darker. It says in verse 24, gave them over the sinful desire of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Creation, sex, man and woman in the covenant of marriage, the only place for sex. They took it outside of that and they began engaging in premarital relations, extramarital relations, whatever, whatever lust these days. It's pornography. It's sending pictures of, of people back and forth on time. Whatever it is, that's sexual impurity. And the reason why in most cultures that reject God, the first thing that happen is sexual impurity is because the sexuality is so deeply tied to our spirituality. Every counselor that you talk to will tell you that. From Freud onward, every theologian will say that. Sexuality is so close to the core of who we are, so connected to worship in many cultures. In fact, sexuality and worship happen in one and the same place in these idol temples. 
G.K. Chesterton, that great British theologian, said, anytime you knock on the door of a brothel, you're looking for Jesus. Anytime you turn on a pornographic movie, you're looking for God. Anytime you engage in premarital relations with the person that you're with, you're looking for God. The deepest, the deepest sensual desires are really a crying out for the God of the universe who made us. Because is that not, after all, what sexuality is? To look at someone, an object of absolute affection, and to say, I give everything to you. And is that not what it is in return? For someone to look at you and say, I worship you, or you are awesome. You are beautiful and I give myself to you. The only appropriate context for that is a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Anything other than that is the first step, the first sign that we are degrading into immorality because idolatry always finds itself in immorality. It doesn't stop there. It gets worse. It gets worse. It says in, in, in verse 26, they exchange natural relations, okay, women and men, that's natural, for unnatural relations. The same way men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. The Bible could not be more clear here on where it stands as it relates to homosexuality. says the natural way that God created was man and woman in the context and the covenant of marriage. When sin enters, idolatry enters, immorality enters, all of these things get skewed. And the unnatural relationship between men and men and women with women, homosexuality, is a degradation of the original plan of God. And here's how we know. He says they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. That homosexuality comes with its own consequences that you will see people experience when they engage in these kinds of acts. I'm not making this up. Okay, this is the Bible. Uh, you can disagree with me all you want, but I'm not, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're going to disagree with God on this. I said this some time ago, but when people were debating whether homosexuality really is a sin in the Bible, we had a gathering of our presbytery leaders, 90 churches and their leaders. Our senior pastor, who doesn't speak uh, much English in gatherings like this, stood up there and he said, I don't speak much English, but in my English Bible, it says homosexuality goes against the plan of God, so please can you learn some English? And then he sat down. This is not something that we're, 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 we're not making this up. It's not like what we want to be the case. Like we, this is what God's word is saying. And you know, 20 years ago, guys, 20 years ago, even the Democrats, the liberals were saying, no, 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 no. You cannot legalize same-sex marriage. That's very clear. That's, again, that's not my opinion. That's matter of fact. But somewhere along the way, as our society became more and more involved in running from and rejecting God, this is the world in which we live. It gets worse, guys. It gets worse. And then you see all of these things, list of vices in 29 that we talk about. And then it says in verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's where we are. 
We know it's wrong, but we do it anyways. We know it's wrong. We may not do it, but people who do it, Caitlyn Jenner, hero of our day. Yeah, we approve of those. What's wrong with our world? No, don't applaud that. That's wrong. What's wrong with our world? We approve of those who do things that go against the call of God. When Bill Clinton, former president, was embroiled in an affair with his intern, Monica Lewinsky, his approval ratings went up. We approve of those who do the very things we know to be wrong. What's wrong with our world? Could it be that what's wrong with the world is actually a lot closer to home than we thought? It's not just out there. It's in here. It's me. It's my sin. My idolatry. My rebellion against God that made this world the way it is. And every one of these sins you see in verse 29 onward are sins that affect the community. The lust, it's anger, it's bitter. You can't do these things without other people. And it divides the community. And our nation is divided. Right? Families are divided. Churches are divided. And when you birth a baby into this world, <laughs> you're saying, welcome to our world. So what do we do? What did God do? See, it's only against the blackness of that backdrop that we can actually see the greatness of what God has done for us in Christ. Because here's what the Bible also says. If this came as a result of rejection, then the reverse can happen if we embrace God. But then Romans 3, 10 and 11 tells us that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. And here's the worst. There's no one who seeks God. None of us would seek God. Death entered when creature took the place of the creator. But here's what God did. How can I get them to see? How can I get... I've shown them my glory in creation. I've shown them my glory in the cosmos. I've shown them my glory in everything that's there. But they still rejected it. Maybe then finally they'll see my glory if I come to a cross. And so finally there, God seeks to jar a sleeping world, saying, look what I will do to show you my love. I will take the place of creation and I will die on a cross for you to take all of the punishment for all of your idolatry, to take all of the punishment for all of your immorality, to take all of the punishment for all of your depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, all of those things, I'll take it upon myself. Here's our reality. Death happened when we took the place of God, but life happened when God took the place of us on the cross. He says, here I am. My arms are open wide. Whoever would believe in me will not perish, but have the life that is eternal that begins now, even in this broken and dark world. What idol has ever loved you back 
as you worship idols, can I ask you, how's that worked out for your life? You're further in bondage. You're further enslaved than you ever thought you could be because the nature of sin, it takes you further than you wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. It costs you more than you were willing to pay. You had no idea, but that's the nature of idolatry. What kind of idol will ever love you back? None of them will. But there is one God who will give you infinitely more than you ever gave to him. His name is Jesus, and he came into our broken world to say this, this, this. This is what I will do in order to fix a world that's gone wrong. Will you come to me? Will you trust me? Will you trust that I can give you what nothing else in this world can? Let's pray together. Let's take a moment to think about our lives. Can I ask you, what is your God? And secondly, how is life with that God on the center of your heart? How's that working out for you? Some of us here today, uh, I think God has been calling you over the past few weeks, past few months, to say, you need Jesus in your life. It's not working out. You thought you were free by getting out from the chains, what you thought were chains of religion. But you're more enslaved than ever. Right, genuine freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Genuine freedom is the ability to do what's right and to not do what's wrong. That's freedom. And some of us in here think we're free, but we're really enslaved. Some of us have been acting like a fish inside of a bowl, swimming around and looking at the world outside of that fish bowl, saying it would be better if I were free, only to realize that freedom outside of a fishbowl for a fish isn't freedom, it's death. And you're dying to get back to life. Life is found in Jesus' name. And I think some of us, and the Lord may be calling us to come to him today. In a minute or so, I'm going to give an invitation as we pray right now. I want to give an invitation for anyone who feels like, yeah, you know what? I've been hearing this message for some time, and I need Jesus in my life. I'm not happy. I'm anxious. I feel guilty all the time. I feel angry. There's got to be more to life. You were meant for so much more, my friend. You were meant for so much more. So as we pray, surrendering our idols to the Lord, saying, God, this is my idol. I know it. I give it to you and I trust you. I want to give us about a a minute to pray together. And then after a minute, I'm going to give an invitation. I'm just going to say, if anyone wants to put their trust in Jesus, just raise your hand from where you are. Okay, so think about that. If that's you, yeah, you know what? I need the Lord in my life. Yeah. So let's pray for a minute or so. Lord, I've made a mess of my life. I need you. God, help me. Lord, help me. I need you. Let's come back to the Father. Right? It's time to come home. It's time to come home to perfect love. Yeah, let's pray for a minute or so. Yeah, I'm going to give this invitation.
continue to pray. It's just talking to God. That's all it is. And I want to just ask you to pray with your eyes closed so that you can really focus and concentrate on God. And for those of us in here, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, make you stand up or anything like that. Uh, There will be a time where if you choose to stand for Christ that uh, you make that known publicly. But I'm not going to put you on the spot or ask you to do that right now. I just want you to to let God wrestle with your heart. Because some of you, God's been speaking to your heart and you feel this, this sense in which, man, I think he's talking to me right now. As we pray with our eyes closed, if there's anyone in here, you just feel like, yeah, you know what? I think God is calling me begin a relationship with him and I need him in my life I don't like the way life has been I need him if there's anyone like that can I just ask you with our eyes closed just quietly where you are you just raise your hand the sign yeah okay thank you I see you you can put your hand down yeah, um, yeah I need I need Jesus in my life yeah, we've had some folks responding now praise God for that I need Jesus in my life okay thank you okay see a couple in the middle on the left side. Thank you. Yeah, praise God for that. I need Jesus in my life. Yeah, I don't want to live this way anymore. I made an idol of other things. I want to worship God alone. Yeah, there's been about maybe four or five people like that. Anyone else? I, yeah, you know what? I want Jesus in my life. Again, I'm not going to ask you to, to do anything else, but For those who raise their hand, and for all of us, I'm going to ask you to, in your heart, just pray this prayer that I repeat and and, and ask yourself, do I believe this to be true? And if you pray honestly and sincerely, the Lord hears your honest prayers. Whether you pray this out loud or not, the Lord knows your heart. He'll come and and, and meet with you. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have loved me and that you have created me for yourself. Thank you that you've given me hope and maybe through the lives of other people, I have seen how good you are. I see it in the world. I know that there's gotta be a God. But when I look at the cross, I see the truest example of your love. I wanna be able to sing that God, you're so good to me like others are singing. Lord, I need you. I confess that I have sinned and I've messed up and I need a savior. I need Jesus. I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. Come into my life. Would you be my savior? Be my master. And help me to be uh, the child of God that you want me to be, changing me from the inside out. Thank you so much. I love you because you have loved me first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let's stand together. If you prayed that prayer for the first time in your heart, uh, I really want to ask you to, to talk to me or shoot me a message or talk to your house church shepherd. This is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. Uh, and I want to walk with you. And if you made that decision today, um, it's an awesome day. Right? It's a new day. Uh, and life will never be the same again. So please, uh, let's talk. Uh, and let's continue to follow up on this. Now, let's sing one last song as we give our uh, offerings and bring his tithes to him. And then uh, we'll conclude in prayer.